Well, good morning, church family. Uh, my name is Randy, and I'm privileged to be the senior minister here at the church. I don't know how many traffic lights you have to go through in order to come to church or to go to work. Okay, several, right? Several, yeah, ten, maybe. I don't know. I've, I have between two and four, uh, depending on the route that I take. And of course, um, traffic lights have yellow lights, and I've often wondered who gets to decide a yellow light's length. Who gets to decide that? And so I looked into this matter, and, and there's a formula that determines how long a yellow light is. And here's the formula. There it is. I'm not kidding. I'm not making this up. Does anybody know what that means? Yeah, neither do I. I have no clue what that means, but that's the formula, and it has to do with the following factors, the speed of a vehicle, the uh, deceleration rate, the effect of gravity, the road's vertical rise or drop, the ratio between perception and reaction. All of those have to do with the equation that determines how long the yellow light is, and in Champaign-Urbana, it's going to range anywhere between three seconds to four and a half seconds. And it has to be just within the right range because if it's, you know, if it's too long of a yellow light, well then, you know, people will just kind of blow through traffic, right? Uh, and then if it's too short, well then, you know, you'll miss the yellow light, and then that means you're going to be running through a red light, and then that means you may be getting a ticket, and then there are people who think, well, that yellow light is too short, you know, so it's, it's got to be kind of just right, and in our community, depending on where you are, it's between three and four and a half seconds. Um, I mention all this because the length of a yellow light has direct bearing on my own generosity. Um, while shorter yellow lights up to a point tip, typically tend to make driving safer, um, I personally prefer the longer yellow lights because then I can just blow through the intersection and I don't have to think about the person on North Prospect holding the cardboard sign. <laughs> and I can avoid doing some really hard work at theology and ethics and social justice. Like, you know, should I give or not? Or how much should I give? What are the other drivers doing? You know, and is that really a diabetic ulcer on that guy's leg? Or is that just dollar store makeup? You think that, Pastor? Oh, my goodness, I'm a sinner. And, 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 you know, so, okay, so I give, but, you know, I kind of did so grudgingly. So is there a link between giving and generosity? And, and so is my gift giving with or without strings attached? And, you know, if I'm, if I'm kind of, you know, being cynical and, you know, stingy, is there a connection then between giving and forgiving? And, you know, am I acting on my own or does my giving represent someone who is generous with their life. And, 
Am I just overthinking all of this? And it's interesting, isn't it, uh, how a yellow light meant for driving can really become a, a spiritual x-ray examining the condition of my heart. And so, all this has to do with a series of messages uh, that we're starting this morning on the theme of generosity. Now, my hunch is that when folks at church hear their minister say the word generosity, what goes through their mind is, oh no, I want to blow through this intersection. <laughs> you know? Uh, here we go again, and it's going to be a three-week shakedown, and actually this series is six weeks. Um, <laughs> that's not a joke, so, but, yeah. <laughs> you may be saying, why did I bring my first-time guest here? Well, okay, why, why didn't I read Randy's Friday email, you know, is there a giving crisis? Is, what's wrong? He's talking about generosity. What's wrong? Breathe. Nothing's wrong. Let me give you three reasons why we're having a generosity series. Here they are. Preachers like to talk in threes. All is well. Stay the course. Kingdom perspective. That, that's why we're doing it. So all is well. Uh, truly. Um, there is no crisis. And so what a better time to talk about it then. Uh, um, I continue to be humbled at how God, through his people at Windsor Road Christian Church, has been and, and continues to be ridiculously generous. And if you're here for the first time, um, we want to love you without any expectations. Uh, it used to be fashionable uh, for a minister to stand up and say, yeah, hey, if you're a first-time guest, don't give. Uh, and I don't think that's right because God may be prompting you to do something somewhere. And what I will say is that if you are new here, well, we're not expecting anything from you. We're delighted to worship with you. And we want to love you without expectations. So this series is not due to some crisis. Uh, all is well. Uh, stay the course, though. So if someone walks away and says, "Well, pastor said this church doesn't see none," the pastor says this church doesn't need my money. Well, I didn't say that. <laughs> you know, the, 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 here's the fact: the fact is, God doesn't need your money. And God doesn't need your righteousness. And God doesn't need your good works. But your neighbor does. And our community does. And our missionaries do. And yes, your church family does. And so, so the, the word is stay the course. You know, Paul, the apostle Paul, would often say to the churches, live in a way that pleases the Lord, just as in fact you are doing. Do so more and more. Keep giving and keep sharing and keep loving. And over a long period of time, being faithful, uh, week after week, uh, day after day, uh, preparing the field and cultivating the field and fertilizing the field and weeding the field and, and then let God handle the growth. 
That's what creates life. Over time, God gives growth, and he's given so much growth. Friday night, we had 300 of our sisters in Christ here in this room right here uh, uh, in our To Tell You My Story event. And it was just such a, a life-transforming experience. And, and, and what was so wonderful was that uh, on the other side of our facility, our Celebrate Recovery community was gathering and uh, we heard a word about you know, victory over our hurts and habits and hang-ups. And, and all of that's just, a, it's a stay-the-course word. And here's the beauty of it all. I'm not just talking about the event itself. I'm talking about just the currency of ministry that occurred in the setup and the teardown. So last Sunday, these chairs were taken down and then tables were set up and it was a community type of feel. And then, and then uh, after the event was over, late Friday evening, Saturday morning, I come into the church and I take a glance into the worship center and these chairs were all set up just like this. Servants were generous with their energy in, in getting things set back up for Sunday. And all of that's happening uh, so much. Uh, Sunday morning, here this morning, around 8.30, our guest uh, services ministry gathered in a circle. And uh, I got to pray with the team uh, uh, who are wearing orange uh, shirts who are loving on you. And they help serve in the fireside room and out in the uh, foyer. There's just a lot of currency of love and currency of ministry that's going on. I'm going to talk about the different currencies of generosity here in just a moment. So uh, my goodness, uh, uh, all is well. Stay the course. And then keep Kingdom perspective. You see, generosity of all of our different currencies signals our service to either the kingdom of self or the kingdom of Christ. And I'm just seeing so much service and kingdom perspective uh, to the Lord in all that's going on here at the church. So all is well, stay the course, kingdom perspective. That's why we're talking about generosity. And this takes us to our text today in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to the New Testament book of Luke. The Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. And you'll find that on page 877 of your church Bibles. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word to call your own, please take the copy uh, that's there and, and, and put your name in it. And, uh, and it's yours because we want everybody to have a copy of God's Scripture. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. He, that is Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, 
adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is God's word. Now, this parable offers us a foundation for a generous life. Generous, generosity, uh, from the word genesis, origins, which leads us to the means by which generosity occurs. So the question this morning from this text that I want us to explore is, what does it take for me to be generous? Generosity is not just something I do, but someone I am. What does it take for me to be generous? Jesus teaches us here. As he introduces to us two worshipers in this passage. Two worshipers who came to the temple for prayer. Two of hundreds who entered temple worship. Every day, twice a day, there was prayer time in the temple. 9 a.m., 3 p.m. And every day, twice a day, Hebrews and faithful God-fearing Gentiles would stream into the temple compound, an area about 17 acres, a perimeter of about three-quarters of a mile. The temple was a series of concentric uh, rectangles. And so on the outer rectangle was the place called the Court of the Gentiles. And then there was a barrier. And then there was the Court of the Women, the Court of the Hebrew Women, the Israeli Women. And then there was another barrier. And then there was the Court of Israel for the Hebrew men. And then there was still another barrier and another uh, concentric uh, square or rectangle, the court of the priests. And then in the center was actually a perfect cube, the holy of holies, the holiest place where the high priest once a year was allowed to enter. And twice a day, every day, this facility filled with prayers and worship. And after entering the compound, the Jewish men would climb the 14 steps leading up to their court, the court of Israel, where the daily sacrifice would occur. And the priest would take an unblemished lamb 
and pin up its front legs and back legs and at the appointed time would slay it and section it and its body would be consumed in the fire and then the priest would take the liquid incense and pour it on the fire and the water would evaporate and the smoke would rise to heaven symbolizing the prayers of God's people. And it was in the court of Israel where those two men worshipped and prayed among hundreds and hundreds. A tax collector and a Pharisee. Both were Hebrew. Both were educated. Both were wealthy. One of them was considered a traitor to Israel. The tax collector. You see, Rome occupied Israel in that day. We have no idea what that's like to be occupied by a foreign power. We have to go back to the War of 1812. That's how, how far back we've got to go. But that was Israel. And Rome heavily taxed their vassal kingdoms. And they set the tax rate and they told their tax collectors, this is how much you need to send to Rome. Now, whatever you can get on top of that, go for it. And we'll back you too. Which set up an opportunity for corruption. And they hired Israelites to do their dirty work of tax collection. And Israel, in turn, hated these collectors for collaborating with a pagan Government, You're enriching yourselves off our backs. And this guy in this parable probably worked for someone like Zacchaeus, whom we will meet in Luke 19, because Luke identifies Zacchaeus as a chief tax collector, meaning he had lieutenants doing work for him, you see. That's the tax collector. And then there was the Pharisee, whom Israel saw as good. Now, we've been conditioned in the church world to view the Pharisees as kind of the bad guys. But if I lived in the first century, I would guarantee you that I would want my granddaughter to marry a Pharisee. Because that Pharisee would be educated and dedicated and pious and moneyed. And that granddaughter needs to take care of her grandpa. <laughs> the Pharisees were a reform movement after the Babylonian exile. And their rise came in response to empty, hollow idolatry. And so they were committed you know, to be word of God keepers. Pharisee literally means the separate ones. So here you have these two wealthy worshipers, both of Hebrew ethnicity, and Jesus lets them go through the intersection to be evaluated by the yellow light. And he lets us overhear their hearts in prayer, starting with the Pharisee in verse 11. Oh God, I thank you. Now, that's a really good start. I mean, gratitude is healthy. 
And in fact, if he would have just said, oh God, I thank you, amen. Oh, that would have been really, really good. But he didn't stop, did he? What's he thankful for? Oh God, I thank you for me. Right? In his prayer, five times he says, I, I thank you that I'm not like, and I fast, and I tithe of all that I get. I, me, my. No wonder the footnote in your Bible says that, uh, he says that, that he prayed to himself. He had a different version of Psalm 8.1, which we studied last week here. His version of Psalm 8.1 went like this. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is my name in all the earth. That's this guy's prayer. And did you notice in his prayer, he never asks God for anything, does he? And why? Because he doesn't think he needs anything. And he doesn't see his need for help. He doesn't see the deficit. So why would he even think about seeking God for generosity? And the routine of daily prayer time at the temple leads us to believe that this was his typical habitual expression of worship. He calls what he's doing worship. Wow. And then there's the tax collector about whom Luke says he stood off by himself and he couldn't even lift his face. He beat his breast. He could barely choke out the words, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, I'm out of control. God, my life is unmanageable. God, be generous to me, please. I need help. And then Jesus shocks his listeners. And we in the 21st century don't feel it like they felt it. Jesus shocked his listeners when he informed them that the tax collector went home justified while the Pharisee went home unjustified. And why is this? For everyone, verse 14, who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. That's the parable. So back to our question, what does it mean to be generous? Well, when it comes to generosity, it has nothing to do with the balance in your bank account. It has everything to do with the mercy of God. And so here's the big idea. Mercy, not money, is the means to generosity. Mercy, not money, is the means to generosity. Let's say that together as a church on three. One, two, three. Mercy, not money, is the means to generosity. Again, mercy, not money, is the means to generosity. You see, the Pharisee tithed 10%. That's what tithe means, 10%. But he didn't have a generous heart. 
The, the Pharisee gave a lot of money, but see, he needed to be praised. He needed to be recognized. He needed to be adored. He gives cash, but his heart's proud. He's satisfied with himself. And he thinks what he's doing is worship. Listen, a distortion in our worship to God will always lead to a dysfunction in our relationship with others. When we have a crooked and twisted vertical relationship with God, it will most certainly show itself in dysfunctional, crooked, twisted ways in our horizontal relationships with people. And this is why Pharisees do not fare well in Luke's gospel. For instance, in Luke chapter 7, when Jesus has a conversation with a Pharisee and a sinful woman, a woman of the city, as Luke says, and she leaves with her sins forgiven. I'm really not certain about the Pharisee. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus speaks to both tax collectors and Pharisees, and he tells three parables, the lost sheep, lost coin, lost sons, lost sons. And one son lived a kind of a tax collector life, and he, was, he went to the far-off country, and, and he needed to repent of his irreligious behavior. But then the other son lived a more of like a Pharisee life, and, and he needed to repent of his religious behavior, you see. And the Pharisees were the epitome of the elder brother in the prodigal son. And we know from the parable of the prodigal sons that the younger brother came home and came to the party. But, but we're left wondering about the elder brother, you see. So you see, Jesus is teaching us that there's two ways that you can be your own Savior and Lord. There's two ways to reject God. And one way is the tax collector's way of trampling on people. And the other way is being hyper-religious and legalistically righteous to others and then saying, now God or now people, you owe me. <laughs> well, you know, in that case, God's not your Savior. You are your Savior. And the mark of being your own Savior is verse 1. You treat others with contempt. You look down on people. You, you're self-righteous and you feel superior. And, and that's why Jesus said in Matthew 21, 31, truly I say to you, and he's talking to Pharisees, the tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. I'm, that's like shocking. Why are the typically good in Luke's gospel, the Pharisee types, why do we see them kind of living in the environment of unforgiveness and yet the tax collector types, they're forgiven? What, what, why? <coughs> it's this. The Pharisee doesn't know he's lost. The tax collector knows he's lost. The Pharisee doesn't get it. And if you have a curable disease and yet refuse to admit it and do something about it and then you die, what killed you? The disease or the denial? And what's the symptom of pride? 
You look down on other people showing contempt. Uh, Susan Harding is an anthropologist, and her word for this is the repugnant cultural other. The repugnant cultural other. And so the Pharisee, the Pharisee othered the tax collector. The Pharisee stigmatized the tax collector. The Pharisee cast the tax collector out, marking him as a category of inferiority whose very existence required an explanation. And in doing so, the Pharisee exalted himself, right? And, and, and even deified himself in his own eyes and, and privileged himself. And what Susan Harding is getting at is that if I am consumed by this belief that the person, you know, over there, and let's just get practical and real. I'm not talking about, I'm not even talking about in our nation, in our state. I'm just talking about in this room, in our congregation. We talk about one of the themes of, of relentless unity. And what is it that obstructs relentless unity in our congregation? It is this repugnant cultural other where, you know, we other folks in, in God's community. And if I'm consumed by this belief that the person over there is both other and repugnant, I may never discover that, you know, my favorite television program is also their favorite television program. And that, that we like some of the same books, and though maybe for different reasons. And, and that we both know what it's like to nurse a loved one through a long illness, see. By otherizing that person, I not only prevent myself from sharing generosity with that person, but I keep myself from receiving generosity from that person. The person to whom I'm showing contempt. Because you see, as all the while I'm otherizing, I'm saying, what do they possibly have that, that they could share with me? Wow. Really? Can you imagine the wounded traveler in the parable of the Good Samaritan, you know, saying to the Samaritan, well, I don't want, I don't want to receive generosity through those people. Samaritans? <laughs> well, then my friend, you're going to bleed to death. Because this is who God has sent. And the gospel is not that the tax collectors are in and the Pharisees are out. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that the humble are in and the proud are out. And it's not that humility earns salvation because humility isn't about earning anything. The humble are like the babies in verses 15, 16, and 17 after this parable. 
after this parable is a short paragraph about Jesus calling the infants to himself and blessing them. And God says, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. What is it about a child that qualifies that child for the kingdom of God? Well, they're humble. They're needy. And they're not afraid to let you know it either. Babies aren't bashful about letting you know how hungry they are or how in need of change they are. I've never had a baby come to me in the fireside room and say to me, Pastor, I want to apologize for crying out in your message today. I've never had a baby say that to me. Why? Because they're babies. They don't say that. They say, when are you going to get done? I'm hungry. I need a new diaper. Let's go. Land the plane, man. <laughs> now, there's a humility in that. There truly is. There's a, because they're not bashful about letting you know how needy they are. And like a baby, the tax collector cries out, God, have mercy on me. And mercy here comes from a word. The New Testament comes to us by means of the Greek language. And this word, have mercy on me, is the word, the Greek word, hilasterion. Hilasterion. And the meaning is not, you know, God, just kind of give me a break. That's not it. The meaning is, God, I've done more than just violate a law of yours. God, I have violated you. I have violated you. And I need atonement for my sin. And so hilasterion is a word picture. Back to the temple in the holy of holies. What's in that? cube. What's in that cube is a box called the Ark of the Covenant. And it was a kind of footstool where the king would rest his feet. And so the king of glory, before the king of glory, is this holy box. And inside the box, the Ark of the Covenant, is a copy of the Ten Commandments. And the symbolism is that no one can withstand the scrutiny of the law. And so the high priest would enter once a year with the lifeblood of a sheep and would sprinkle that blood on the top of that box called the mercy seat, shielding you from the law. And that seat was called the mercy seat, the hilasterion seat. As that lamb's life blood is the substitute for my life blood for violating God in my sin. And that's what the tax collector understands. I need help. I deserve to be cut off. But I plead for mercy. And the gospel is that Jesus, who is holy and pure and who hates evil 
and who loves us, surrendered his heavenly glory, his wealth, his splendor, and he put on human flesh, and he became vulnerable, and they stripped him of his clothing, and they tortured him on a cross, and he died in the dark for us. Jesus is both high priest and lamb, as Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore, he, that is Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make hilasterion, to make mercy, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And when the tax collector pleads, God, have mercy on me, the sinner. He's saying, I, I need your generosity, God. And those of you who have experienced the giving side of generosity, you know that generosity bites. It can hurt. And no one was hurt like Jesus. And the tax collector humbled himself and ask for what only God could give. And when God's grace and mercy floods your life, then, then, you know, you will be what the world needs. You'll be salt, a preservation agent in that day. And you'll be light in a dark world. And you will display multi-dimensional generosity and you will know that generosity is not just something you do but someone you are and you become competent in the multi-dimensional currencies and so let me mention some of those currencies there's the currency of power next week when we study Zacchaeus he exercised generosity, not just in the generosity of, of money, but generosity of power. Some of you who are uh, employers or directors or supervisors or teachers, you hold authority over other people. And you will see, by means of God's grace, that the authority and um, power of currency is a stewardship for you to serve, not to exalt yourself. Proverbs 3.27 says, Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. The currency of power. How are you doing with that? What about relational currency? You know, some of us would rather just write a check, but we really don't want to get it personally involved you know we we want to conserve our relational energy any introverts here huh i saw this neat little chart how introverts make friends and uh first dogs count as friends and then number two an extrovert found them liked them and adopted them that's how introverts have friends and you know we value our relational currency and our and that commodity to us has more value than cash. And 
Well, Jesus wants us to be generous with our relational energy. And that leads us to the currency of hospitality, right? The idea of letting someone into your home and into your space. And some of us are, you know, we're just afraid uh, for how others will judge us for how our house looks. And, you know, we're, we just kind of worry. Say, well, it's, you know, I, I, you know, I don't have shiplap and I don't have subway tile. It's not a magnolia home. And I just, you're really self-conscious about that. Or, or, or it is a magnolia home and it's like a museum. And so I'm happy to give you money, but don't walk on my carpet, okay? I mean, you know, it's just... How are you with the currency of hospitality? What about the currency of forgiveness? Are you a scorekeeper? Huh? I uh, like this other chart that uh, I don't hold grudges. I remember facts. And, you know, how are you with keeping score? And the radically generous don't keep score. And they don't punish people by bringing up the past in their personal relationships. And then there's the currency of time. I'm happy to give dollars, but my calendar is mine. I don't like interruptions. Well, then, you know, just admit it, that what you really value is controlling your schedule. And isn't it interesting that after these verses, the disciples are shooing away parents who have brought their infant children to Jesus to bless, and the disciples are thinking, where is the payoff in this? And, you know, he's busy. He's busy. And, and Jesus became indignant because Jesus valued the lives of those whom the Roman government did not recognize as persons. And then what about the currency of sex? Sexual intimacy outside of biblical marriage is a form of ungenerous living. It is. You know, I want sex with you, but I don't want the commitment of marriage. I want to keep my independence. Well, that's radically ungenerous because it means you're withholding the most important currency, fidelity, sacrificial love. And yes, the currency of ministry. You know, you, you, you really don't care to serve because anywhere, because you don't really see how you can be a blessing to others. Or you serve because you want to you want, you want to be needed and you want to be recognized. You see? So there's a you know, there's a Pharisee way of being ungenerous, and then there's a tax collector way of being ungenerous. And And what Jesus is teaching us here is that you know, generosity is, a, is about a life of giving, not taking. And it's about hands opened to share and receive. It's about a humble heart, a selfless spirit, and an otherworldly joy that has swept you from your puny kingdom of one to God's big sky kingdom. And the reason why we're not generous is that we're not happy enough. Because we're seeking happiness where you will never find happiness. We're seeking happiness from below. And pure happiness, true happiness, true joy is from above. So what, it would, be, what would it be like for us to live out of a heart of hilasterion? A heart who's been so flooded with the grace of God that we're just freed, freed to be generous. We're going to be leaving here shortly and go out through these doors. Some of you have.
the currency of power. And with a word or a decision or a meeting, you have, you have the power to improve and encourage someone's life. What are you going to do with that? How are you going to steward that? Some of you have the currency of time. And how will that be stewarded to the benefit of others? And, and what about abilities and talents in ministry? The people will, will, will flourish if you let God work through you. And if you receive what God wants to give to you through others. We've got two groups here. We've got tax collectors and we've got Pharisees. Okay. And just so you know, I, I'm, I'm in the Pharisee group because I, I have to repent of my religion. I have to repent of my self-religion, my self-righteousness. And some of us here feel like Pharisees. And we kind of tend to stand aloof. And we're in need of tough mercy. And others of us feel like tax collectors. Standing alone. And what God wants to give you is tender mercy. Tender mercy, tough mercy. But it's still mercy. Mercy. Freely given by a God who loves you. And the gospel calls us to neither stand aloof or stand alone, but to stand together. To face God together. To worship Him together. To give love together. To receive love together. And instead of otherizing, he wants us to brother eyes and sister eyes. And in doing so, the world sees and the world wants. And God's grace and mercy through you, through us, is given. Freely you have been given. Now freely give. Mercy not money, is the means to generosity. Amen.